Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible X-Fi gateway. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of January 13th, 2020. Another week, another free agent signing for the Chicago White Sox. This time, it's reliever Steve Ciszek, to help out with the bullpen. We'll discuss the impact Ciszek will have on the White Sox and guess how manager Rick Renteria will use him. Also this past week, arbitration salaries were exchanged and agreed, agreed upon for the White Sox and their players. After tallying up the salaries, where does the White Sox 2020 payroll sit at and do the White Sox have another move in them for this offseason? We had a lot of P.O. Sox questions from our Patreon supporters this week, so we'll try to answer as many as we can at the end of the show in P.O. Sox. So joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. You and Greg Nix did a awesome job last week filling in for me. Yes, apparently, though, he was not uh, Lou Gehrig to your Wally Pip, so welcome back. How is China? <laughs> Uh, China is an experience, and for anyone that has been thinking about going, so Beijing is where I went, and Beijing is going to host the 2022 Winter Olympics, so who knows, maybe you will be going, Jim, representing Team USA in curling, if we can keep that dream alive. Yeah, not, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a, Schuster's the hero now, so there's no, it's going to be tough to unseat him. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, with Beijing, the concerns that I had going there, uh, I, I think were greatly exaggerated. I was worried about the pollution, and I lucked out as the pollution levels uh, were not extreme. I did not have to wear a mask. That doesn't mean that there are not bad days in Beijing. There are still plenty of bad days in Beijing. But the if you're thinking of ever going to Beijing and you want to go visit the Great Wall of China and you want to go see the capital of China, the one thing you have to be conscious of going there is how to pay for things. So in China, they are quickly moving to all digital payments, which means they don't even accept credit cards or cash at some places like restaurants and convenience stores. So it's kind of a it's kind of a pain in the neck. Uh, I mean, it's very cool. It makes you know transactions very seamless. And you know, when you're in such a large city like Beijing, which I think is like up to 12 million people, uh, you got to get people in and out because uh, it's a lot busier there than it is in Chicago. So I get it. It's just as a tourist, it's hard to know whether or not if I'm going to have a meal at your restaurant. 
if you're going to accept my American Express card or if you're going to even accept my cash. And I would need to have your digital payment app, uh, which is often WeChat. And in order for that to work, I need to have a Chinese bank account. And if I don't have that, I'm going to have to know someone in China to help pay for this meal or my Coca-Cola or or whatever, which I often had to do. So that's the only thing to think about right now if you're thinking about going to China is to plan ahead at the places that you want to visit knowing that they're moving to all digital payments and you are going to have to pick the places that still accept cash and credit cards, which are going to be the very touristy places. And if you don't want to go to the touristy places, I recommend that you know someone in Beijing to tag along with you. All right. That's uh, it's like I had that experience when I went to, uh, I, I think closest I've come is when I went to South Korea, just processing, you know, everything, just how to pay, how to talk, how to, uh, you know, how to, I guess, you know, I guess, line up, you know, just all these little things we take for granted, uh, in, uh, in, in the States or even in, you know, places where they have, um, you know, you know, the characters we're used to reading and being, being able to sound things out loud, uh, just, it gets thrown off. So it's kind of, it is confusing, but yeah, if you can have local help, it's a huge help. Like, especially in South Korea, I just kind of walked around like a duckling behind my friends, uh, because they knew what to mm-hmm. do and that made it so much easier. Yeah, that's exactly how I was. I didn't order a single meal. I just told people what I was hoping to get. So I did get the soup dumplings when I was there. Uh, I had the Peking duck. It was awesome. I had real dim sum compared to the dim sum you get in Chinatown. It's much, much better in Beijing, of course. I ate really well. The food is awesome in Beijing. I had hot pot. Uh, that was another highlight of the week. Uh, but, you know, for for another part of what I do in my daily life, I have to go to Beijing now uh, for the foreseeable future every January. Uh, right. So I'll be better prepared when I go uh, in 2021. But when you qualify for the Winter Olympics, <laughs> curling, Jim, uh, you'll be ready, too, in 2022. And I'll drop your name. Awesome. It'll get you really far in Beijing. <laughs> really, really far. Uh, but yeah, China was a uh, was it was an okay time, and I am currently suffering from jet lag. Uh, so right now I am wide awake, and that is good because let's talk about what the Chicago White Sox did this past week. And again, another week, another signing. Uh, I like <laughs> this as far as off season for the Chicago White Sox. I hope this happens for the foreseeable future uh, in future years with this type of activity, but the White Sox signed Steve Ciszek, right-handed reliever, to a one-year contract for $6 million. It does have a club option for the 2021 season for another $6 million, so it could possibly be a two-year $12 million, depending on how well he pitches for the White Sox in 2020. Ciszek has been with the Chicago Cubs the last two seasons, in which former manager Joe Madden used him a lot. Steve Ciszek made 80 appearances in 2018, 70 appearances in 2019, and he's been good. He carried a 2.18 ERA with a 2.3 war, according to Baseball Reference, in 2018. And in 2019, he had a little bit of a regression, but not too much, where he had a 2.95 ERA and a 1.8 war, according to Baseball Reference, in 2019. C-Shack is 33 years old, and he throws a sinker-slider combo more than 80% of the time with a sprinkle of a high-four-seam fastball. And Jim, I think this is a good addition by the White Sox. It's obviously not a wow addition. The White Sox got Steve C-Shack. Oh my gosh, they're going to win the American League Central. It's not on that level. But I think it does give manager Rick Renteria another dependable veteran arm in the bullpen. And I do think it's insurance just in case Kelvin Herrera does not return to form. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. When you looked at the the relief pool uh, throughout the offseason, especially with the way the Braves got the jump on it early, it really rounded down the number of really compelling additions. Like there was Dylan Batances, if he's healthy. Drew Pomeranz went for a huge deal for San Diego. Uh, his numbers were off the charts as a reliever in a, uh, uh, just a, a recent uh 
convert to relieving. So his track record was short but really good. Will Harris, you know, he he had some uh, he had a great run with the Astros, even on the older side. So he signed a three-year deal. So after him and after the Braves' early spree. There wasn't really a whole lot of guys who you look at him and think like, oh, he can change the complexion of the bullpen. Like Daniel Hudson was one he had just signed with the Nationals. Uh, Craig Stammen, he signed with the Padres. Uh, Pedro Strope was out there. Brandon Kinsler, Juan Nicasio, like all these guys who were just, you know, had some, you know, some really strong moments, but otherwise were on the more... Uh, ordinary side. And I think of that group that uh, C-Sheck was the best. And when he looked at his track record with the Cubs and, and talked to some Cubs fans and, and people who had followed them and, and written about him, it just seemed like C-Sheck was more of a guy, a victim of his own success in a way uh, with the Cubs bullpen uh, being somewhat of a patchwork job that C-Sheck was one of the more reliable performers from say April to July. So because he was so good April to July, Mad went to him a ton in, in August and September, especially his second year, he got hurt, had to come back, you know, had missed, I think, about 12 days due to a hip injury, came back, and Madden just used him a ton again, like, you know, more than half games until the return started diminishing. So he's not a guy who can carry a bullpen. He's not somebody who he can, you know, like ride the way that the, say, the Indians rode Andrew Miller or something like that. But as, say, like the third or fourth best relief option as the maybe... Uh, number two righty or number three righty behind uh, Alex Colomay, he helps. And I think as long as they don't see him as the guy and avoid leaning on him too hard, the way because he takes the ball every time you give it to him, he's not going to say no, apparently. Uh, as long as you protect him from himself and, and as long as Rick Renteria takes the proper measures to protect himself uh, from uh, you know, running, you know, I guess, running through these guys. He should help and add some depth until guys like, say, Tyler Johnson or Zach Birdie or Ian Hamilton or whoever these uh, top righties in AAA right now, uh, until they come along and, and prove themselves as better options. And the thing with Steve Ciszek and the way that he pitches, I mean, he's much different if he's coming in relief, let's say, for someone like Lucas Giolito or Dylan Cease or Renaldo Lopez. He's not a fireballer by any stretch of the imagination. And I know managers today, they kind of want that difference from the starting pitcher to relievers because it can mess up hitters having to face that reliever one time in the game just to see someone that pitches in a much different manner kind of throws off their rhythm and makes it a lot easier to get out of that inning unscathed. So we'll see on how Steve Ciszek performs with the Chicago White Sox in 2020. Uh, again, I like the move. It, it does add more depth to the Chicago White Sox bullpen. But on that topic now, Jim, for the White Sox bullpen, I'm just jotting down names here, and I feel like I'm missing someone. So I still think Alex Colome is going to be the closer, with Aaron Bummer mm-hmm. being the setup guy. And Steve Ciszek and Kelvin Herrera will have the responsibility of getting the ball to Aaron Bummer. And then after Ciszek and Herrera, I have Jace Fry as being the other left-handed reliever in the bullpen. And I am not excluding Jimmy Cordero or Evan Marshall. Well, that's seven pitchers. Who do you have as the eighth guy out of the bullpen? Uh, it's still, I think, a little bit up in the air right now. I think that Carson Fulmer, he's going to have something to say just because you know, as much as people don't want to say anything about Carson Fulmer and for good reason. Uh, it's just, he's going to be out of options uh, going into the, and in, in going into spring training. And so maybe, you know, if he has a really good spring, the White Sox might have to carry him just to see if, you know, he's got anything that can really hold up uh, over the course of the, uh, you know, over the course of months, the way like sometimes his stuff appears during, innings or games uh the the stuff yeah i i think it's not quite as as sharp as it was in vanderbilt like the college world series version of fulmer i don't know if we've ever seen that in the majors or even in the high minors for more than say like a game at a time uh but you know theoretically that he's still there and if you know say if he has a great spring training and then just looks awful in april the way he does he could probably sneak him down into, you know, run him through a waiver, see if he can get him down to Charlotte. Or if he has a really bad spring and, and has the inconsistency that has kind of defined him, uh, then I think uh, then you could probably do the same thing, just get him down uh, into Charlotte through a waivers. And if you lose him, probably better just to have 
the change of scenery and just that taken away from the White Sox. But for the time being, I think on paper, you're running spring training, letting Fulmer, uh, I guess, win the maybe not his job to lose because I think it's giving Fulmer too much credit, but at least uh, all things being equal, he'd be the first one you go to. I'm okay with that to start the season, but that's the spot in the bullpen gym that if the White Sox are competitive and they are in a position to compete and maybe win one of the postseason spots, maybe win the American League Central. I think that's just a dead giveaway in late June, early July, where we're going to have a discussion on this show about how Rick Renteria, uh, Rick Hahn, I should say, needs to help out Rick Renteria and go get another reliever to boost the bullpen. Again, I'm okay with this bullpen arrangement and having one of the open spots, having a open spot, I should say, available for competition during spring training. But if the White Sox are in a position and they are winning and they're playing winning baseball, that is some that that's one of the bullpen spots I'd like Rick Hahn to approve upon. So uh, even if Carson Fulmer is doing okay, let's say he's carrying a four ERA, I'd still want Rick Hahn to approve upon it during the season. Yeah, that's fair. And I think, you know, most GMs, it's been pretty, I guess, commonplace to where they pick up some reliever, you know, maybe not a uh, world beater, uh, but just, you know, adding depth. I think that's always uh, kind of front of mind, especially say, you know, if they, Kelvin Herrera gets injured for yet another season or, uh, you know, Ian Hamilton isn't able to overcome his terrible luck from last year. Zach Birdie never finds it. Like the depth never arrives. I imagine there will be at least one reliever called upon to try to change, unless it's like a Jimmy Cordero situation where, they just happen upon a live arm who, uh, yeah, another team tries to sneak through waivers and they have an idea for him and it works. Like uh, Tyron Guerrero, uh, who is uh, shuffled down out of the 40-man roster because of uh, you know, recent additions, uh, he's somebody theoretically could fit that mold. Somebody who throws in the high 90s and has had bits of success with the Marlins, but yeah, really doesn't have the secondary stuff to uh, overwhelm uh hitters and, and, and they can eventually figure out his heat. Uh, maybe they have an idea for him that, you know, maybe after two months in uh, Charlotte, they he's proven himself to where even in a tough environment, he stands out. But uh, right now, I think, yeah, that's kind of my idea. I, I'm along the same lines to where uh, I expect them, yeah, there, there's enough either injury concerns or uh, thinness of minor league track records to where they feel like probably some proven option will have to be added somewhere along the way. Well, Steve Ciszek was not the only signing the White Sox had last week. They also made several arbitration signings as well as the deadline has come. And there are several players who are going to go to court to decide what their 2020 salary is going to be. But for the Chicago White Sox, they were able to come to agreement with the following players for contracts for the 2020 season. Closer Alex Colome will be making $10,532,300 dollars. For 2020, Evan Marshall will be making $1.1 million. Lurie Garcia is getting a pay boost. He's making $3.25 million. Nomar Mazzara, again, was still under arbitration when the White Sox acquired him from the Texas Rangers. He'll be making $5.56 million. And Carlos Rodon is not really seeing a boost in pay for 2020. He'll be making $4.45 million for the White Sox. Uh, I should say with the White Sox, and that may be only for one half of the 2020 season as he continues to rehab from his arm injuries, including Tommy John surgery. So those five contracts come out to a little below $25 million in total. And when you add James McCann agreeing to his new deal in December, it's over $30 million in arbitration contracts for the Chicago White Sox in the 2020 season. So the White Sox payroll is now around $122 million, the highest team payroll since the 2011 season when they carried a $127 million payroll. Jim, the White Sox have exceeded our payroll limits on SoxMachine.com during the offseason plan project. But even since they've done that, and they've been so active this offseason, the lingering question is still, is there another move for the White Sox this offseason? And do they exceed the $127 million record? I don't want to count them out just because it's been very refreshing to have a new player to talk about every week. It's been great for our content strategy, so I, I don't want to dissuade them from doing that. <laughs> but, you know, when you look at the way the White Sox can add and, and you know, I think the one 
possibility if they want a right-handed bat, there are you know, Marcelo Zuna still out there, Nick Castellanos is still out there, Josh Donaldson's still out there. Not that I think that any of those guys, I guess Yasiel Puig also counts, although he has reverse splits, but you know, maybe one of those guys could fall through the cracks to where the White Sox get back involved the way they were earlier in the offseason, but it strikes me as I think they're more or less fine right now, and I, I uh, at least you know, the way they view themselves is they're fine for now, and I think the additions they've made, like Keuchel and Encarnacion guys and their, you know, Grandal, another guy in his 30s, uh, who are entering their decline phases maybe, and the White Sox want to see exactly what they have in their uniform. You know, there might be a year for where they, you know, this is where they kind of stop for now, and if they're great earlier than expected they they add some more payroll at the deadline and if they're you know maybe if they're a little bit disappointing or just you know maybe like 85 wins which isn't enough to get anywhere but encouraging uh then they can push further with additions and and with uh you know tv ratings up and with uh attendance up that maybe they feel inspired to push further and get themselves more into the uh league average 150 million dollar range but i think right now the way you look at it might be seeing diminishing returns with spending unless they go for, like, say, a Josh Donaldson and move Yohan Makata to right field, which I would be all for, but I don't think the White Sox are going to do that. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of things that you said. I think the White Sox are done this offseason, adding to the 26-man roster. And, you know, except, you know, perhaps, perhaps there's some starting pitchers that they will sign on minor league contracts, Jim, to help out in Charlotte because I, I still yeah. am having a difficult time figuring out who's going to be the starting rotation for the Charlotte Knights to start 2020. But I think Rick Hahn's work is done concerning the 26-man roster for 2020. Yeah, I think we're we're nearing the time probably within – some teams are already doing it. Uh, the White Sox maybe wait a bit – yeah, tend to wait another week or so. But we are entering uh, spring training non-roster invitee uh, uh that window of time, and I love writing that post, but I imagine we'll see some names, maybe a right-handed outfielder, um, you know, like a 28-year-old right-handed outfielder hasn't figured it out, or uh, like you said, some additional starters who can round out the rotation, but when it comes to guys who need 40-man roster spaces, especially now that they're actually you know cutting some kind of compelling guys on the 40-man roster. Um, I don't know if they have a whole lot more room to add guys who really, uh, unless you're talking about like the the ones we mentioned, the right-handed bats we mentioned, anybody who really uh, changes the complexion of the the opening day plans and the starting lineup and the rotation and key bullpen spots all that much. Yeah, and, you know, one note as far as in baseball, Ken Rosenthal of The Athletic, reported on Sunday that Alex Wood is returning to the Los Angeles Dodgers on a one-year, $4 million deal that has $6 million in incentives. I know he was a very popular target for White Sox fans this offseason, so you can cross him off on the remaining list. But again, I think Rick Hahn is done. Jim thinks Rick Hahn is done, except for the non-roster invitees uh, to compete during spring training and maybe even get an opportunity to earn a job at AAA because there's plenty of jobs available down in Charlotte uh, for the Chicago White Sox AAA affiliates uh, as there's a gap right now between the waves of talent that have arrived to Chicago and those that struggled in Birmingham uh, may not be quite ready yet for AAA, so the White Sox may need to just sign some former major leaguers or some quadruple A players to help fill in the gaps in AAA to provide some extended depth until the younger prospects prove that they are ready for the AAA level. But it's been a very active offseason. It's been a very good offseason for the Chicago White Sox. And Steve Ciszek, I think, is another good signing by the White Sox. And there wasn't too much damage on the arbitration front. But speaking of arbitration... I did want to ask you your thoughts about Mookie Betts setting the new record. I think it's $28 million that he signed with the Boston Red Sox. And I wonder if that is a strong indication, Jim, on what he's going to get for his average annual value uh, after this season. When Nolan Arenado set the record, he set it at, what, $27 million? And then he signed his new deal with the Colorado Rockies. And I think his average annual value came out to be about $32.5 million. So with Anthony Rendon signing for $35 million per season with the Angels this year, uh, do you see Betts next season beating the $35 million average annual value mark in free agency? 
I think it's possible just because of his track record, especially when you think about Bryce Harper's market, uh, a, much, a much lesser market. He was a more polarizing figure when it came to his both his production and just, I guess, his overall essence. I think Betts, you know, he's, he's been uh, you know, a gold glove level defender. He's got the, uh, the, the base running is still intact. The uh, even, even I guess he had kind of a down year last year, and he still scored 135 runs, and you know, had 135 OPS plus. So it's you know he's had a little bit of wobble in his profile, but even his bad seasons are still really useful in a, in a, in a wide variety of ways. And he, he's uh, been basically a six-war player for each of the last uh, five seasons. So it seems like you know I'm thinking about him as a Bryce Harper type, and even though he's a little bit older, I can see him maybe signing a shorter contract, but a more lucrative one on average annual value, assuming that he doesn't uh, you know, miss any significant amount of time. Yeah, I also wonder if that $28 million, if, if Yohan Mikata has a five or six war season, Jim, if that scares Rick Hahn into finding a way to get a contract, a new contract extension with Yohan Mikata, because he could creep up to that to that amount. He continues to grow in arbitration where Nolan Arenado sets the bar, Mookie Betts then resets the bar. Maybe Chris Bryant, if he has a big bounce back season in 2020, maybe he even pushes it closer uh, to $30 million. And then you got players like Yohan Makata now, who next year will be hitting his first uh, year of arbitration. Maybe in a couple seasons, if he continues his success from 2019, perhaps he could be approaching $30 million unless the White Sox find a way to get him under a new contract. That's like the uh, Alex Bregman deal. Yeah. Yeah. I do like the Alex Bregman deal. I, I, I think that would actually work out really well for both sides. Makata can say that he signs for a hundred plus million dollar contract and the, uh, the white Sox <laughs> protect themselves from the, what do they call it? The superstar price tag. Yeah, the super. Yeah, the the Louis uh, Ken Rosenthal uh, describing Luis Roberts' contract as superstar insurance for the White Sox. Yeah. So again, this is obviously Mookie Betts plays for the Boston Red Sox. He's not going to be with the White Sox most likely this year, and he'll be a very popular target, I'm sure, during the Sox Machine offseason plan projects uh, when October November comes around later in 2020. But it's one of those outside influences that we have to keep in the back of our minds because the White Sox have these star players and some of them didn't sign contract extensions like Yohan Makata where a Mookie Betts $28 million final arbitration year could influence how much Makata makes in the near future. And that is something that we as the fans and media alike have to think about and discuss on what the White Sox could possibly do. Cause I'm sure they're having those conversations internally on how can we keep Yohan Mikata around and make sure that whatever we offer is a fair price. So that again, is something to think about during the season, but that's something that definitely caught my eye, $28 million in arbitration. And I'm sure it's not going to take too much longer, Jim, before we see someone get $30 million in their final arbitration year. Uh, but I do think that is a good sign for the Players Association to get that type of money. But, again, the White Sox have been very active this offseason. We think that they're mostly done making those additions, which, because of the White Sox activity, the flurry of activity, has led to a lot of questions this week from our Patreon supporters. So, after the break, it's time for P.O. Sox. After this very busy offseason by the Chicago White Sox, you might be thinking about heading to spring training to see the White Sox in action. And why wouldn't you? Arizona is always a great time. And if you're thinking about going, make sure your first stop is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. There you will learn about why Arizona is a -a one-of-a-kind spring training experience with all 10 stadiums within 50 miles of Phoenix. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including crap breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. And don't forget, there is more to Arizona than just watching baseball. You can explore Arizona's incredible landscapes and thrilling outdoor adventures. Check out must-see destinations like the Grand Canyon and Monument Valley. 
Arizona is a fantastic destination to bring the family along. If you are thinking about taking the kids during spring break, Arizona has family-friendly resorts and hotels offering plenty of fun from water parks, horseback rides, and wildlife parks that the kids will truly enjoy. No better time to check out the new White Sox players than this spring, and the best place to start your spring training adventure is visitarizona.com slash spring training. Again, that's visitarizona.com slash spring training. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, which this week's questions are submitted by our Patreon supporters. So if you would like to ask a question or, or if you really enjoy our content and you want more from Jim and I on SocksMachine.com, go to Patreon.com slash SocksMachine to sign up today and you'll have an opportunity to ask P.O. Sox questions before we officially kick off the seventh season of the Sox Machine podcast after Sox Fest. But the first question that we have in the mailbag, Jim, comes from Mark Hope. And Mark is asking us, the White Sox are not the only team to not have their new Nike jerseys on sale yet. But could the delay be because we are getting a uniform update in 2020 perhaps to be revealed at SoxFest? I would guess not. And I think uh, having seen Leonardo DiCaprio, did you see that uh, photo of him? Uh, captured wearing a White Sox cap while, I guess, helping in a rescue of somebody in the Caribbean. Uh, just uh, this, uh, I guess, a, a candid photo where you just see in the shadows Leonardo DiCaprio wearing a White Sox cap. And I think the <laughs> the pull of the White Sox uh, cap is still a very strong, you know, it's still a strong uh fashion icon uh, especially with that cap and the other thing i was thinking of was the white Sox have the chance to have the first winning season with uh since bringing back the 1983 uniforms uh they brought them back in 2013 and that was just in time for the first of their uh their losing season streak uh, they they formally made it permanent in 2014 and since then they i think they've only won wore it in one or two night games and it really looks good under the lights. Like I've I've kind of gotten tired of them just because I I remember a lot of Sunday blowouts and a lot of just kind of disappointing performances with guys wearing that uniform. But uh, the couple times they've worn in night games, it looks really really uh, just unique and and just catches the eye. And you see like a lot of college teams have uh, mimicked it in their uh, alternate uniforms and. The Batterman, I think, is a very popular icon. So I think I imagine they'll maintain that split just because we haven't seen the White Sox take advantage of their popularity by actually being good and, and pushing merchandise uh, uh, with their quality, not just with you know famous people wearing it. Well, the Milwaukee Brewers kind of set everything up with the glove logo, and the White Sox followed suit by bringing back the 1983 uniforms. But the Milwaukee Brewers, with the new Nike deal, uh, have a uniform refresh, which they are bringing back the glove logo full time. Do you think it's time for the White Sox to also make a similar move like the Milwaukee Brewers and go to the Batterman full time? I don't think so. I think the logo is just too strong. And it's been surprisingly strong with no help from them. So it, I, I just want to see where uh, where the popularity of their look goes when they're actually good again. Okay. Yeah, I agree. I love the the Sox look now. I hope they continue this look forever. But this has been a franchise that's been around for a very, very long time. And they've had many, many different looks. So I wouldn't be shocked if there's some type of new uniform, though, that's unveiled at Sox Fest in 2020. Uh, which is uh, coming up here in a couple of weeks, and it's uh, it's a sold-out event now because of how busy the White Sox have been this offseason. But I still expect them to wear the black alternate uniforms a lot. They wore the black uniforms a lot last year uh, with some sprinkled-in pinstripe and the, the uh, way grays, uh, but still see the 83s quite a bit as well, unless they do make that change at Sox Fest. But I think those are the four uniforms they're rolling with in 2020. And 
hopefully we see those available online soon because I'm sure everybody's lining up to get their Luis Robert jerseys, Jim. I'm kind of surprised that they weren't set up for the holiday season. Yeah, especially they have his number and everything. You know, he's not going to spring training with a random assignment. Uh, fans know what they're signing up for, and I think they, yeah, at least I've seen a lot of them wanting right. to sign up for it. So, Mark, hopefully that answers your question. We're not expecting any changes, but uh, I wouldn't put I wouldn't put it past the White Sox marketing team uh, if they do introduce some type of different look in addition to what they regularly wear. But I'm not expecting any major changes by the White Sox. If they had plans for that, I think we would have seen that shortly after the season ended. Now, Derek Keane's got a question for us, Jim, and Derek is asking, given that there will be exceptions, there seems to be two approaches for a team coming out of a rebuild, aggressively deal prospects and win-now moves or conserve the prospect war chest to fill holes internally. Generally, the former aims to be great for a shorter period of time, while the latter aims to be good for a longer period of time. Which of these approaches do you expect the White Sox to tilt towards? And which one would you like them to tilt towards? Well, I think every every team wants to be, I guess, more towards the latter where they're able to conserve prospects and really be thoughtful about which ones they deal and, and really let depth uh, or, I guess, like lack of opportunities, log jams force the issue. The way the Cardinals seem to deal from depth a lot because they're great at generating uh, major league talent from yeah, – second day of the draft and third day of the draft and other sources. So I, I can see that being the case. The Astros, I guess, are kind of like that. They've been aggressive in dealing for the right players, uh, but they also have found uh, other prospects from secondary sources to where they, they end up replacing those guys pretty quickly. So I think uh, ideally they would want to have a bit of a war chest, but right now, uh, I, I guess at this pace and the pace that their previous year on the farm went, you know, it's a very top-heavy farm system now to where they may be kind of forced into a situation where it's neither. <laughs> uh, they, they basically like everybody that they've had, uh, they've acquired from like uh, the, the high draft picks and the trades of proven major leaguers, like, you know, the, the Chris sale trade and Adam Eaton, Jose Quintana and so forth. They kind of need everybody they've acquired from those very uh, costly deals, or I guess, you know, they, they've, they, they paid a price for, uh, Acquiring those guys, they give great players. They lost a lot of game to get those draft picks, and they they need Nick Magical and, and maybe Andrew Vaughn is the one guy they don't really need right now. But they need Magical to fill that role at second base. They need Michael Kopech. They need uh, they need uh, Elo Jimenez and, and Dylan Cease, and they you know basically everybody they've they've got in uh, from those ways they've carved out a spot for, and they need him to produce. Uh, Steel Walker really you know when the the trade for him is. Maybe the one you know guy from that second tier, third tier, maybe Jonathan Stever is another one, who really had any kind of trade appeal where it wasn't selling low. Uh, so maybe that does, uh, I guess, tip their hand a bit that they're willing to deal from their non-elite prospect stash uh, in order to supplement their major league core, and maybe they'll continue to do that. But I think for the time being, they don't have a lot of guys who they wouldn't be selling low on, and I think ideally they would like to build up a little bit to where they can deal again. But uh, for the time being, I think uh, they probably will be more aggressive just because a lot of their core is locked in for the next uh, four-plus years, and it does allow them to take a hit now and try to acquire guys later. But ideally, I think at least they would like to have a couple positions where they have real depth from to where uh, they will be able to I guess shift some parts of the diamond around to where maybe they're they're costing themselves a couple of immediate producers now, but uh, can afford it because they have at least one or two ideas lined up for immediate production. Well, the prospect lists are coming out, so we're going to see where all of the publications, baseball uh, prospectus, I'm sure Baseball America. I think Baseball America has released their top ten Chicago White Sox prospects. We'll see Fangraphs make their updates and MLB Pipeline. Dot com as well. I, I'm going to be curious to see on how all those major publications rank the White Sox farm system. Just because, Derek, based on you know what you asked as far as aggressively deal prospects and win now moves, I'm with you, Jim. I just don't think that there's enough prospects right now for the White Sox to be all that aggressive as far as making those types of trades. And I think that's why we saw them spend a lot of money in free agency and not be all that active in the trade market. And hopefully, 
hopefully, that some of these prospects can step up in a big way that the White Sox could aggressively deal them midseason before the trade deadline if the team is winning and, again, in contention. Those are big ifs in which they could pull off some really major moves to give themselves a better shot to win in 2020, maybe even in 2021. But uh, right now, I am not confident that the White Sox really have a strong prospect war chest. Yeah, no, it's like especially that that uh, vaunted Birmingham logjam really not materializing. Aside from right. Luis uh, Robert just kind of sprinting through it. Uh, but yeah, Luis Gonzalez, Mike Rodolfo, uh, Luis Masabe, Blake Rutherford, uh, all of those guys failing, you know, failing to crack even a 700 OPS and uh, getting injured and so forth. That, that's the kind of thing where they, you thought they had a critical mass for at least one area of the depth chart. And turns out that they, I guess, unless you count Luis Robert, um, you know, materializing and looking ready for a major league roster. But right now, uh, having you know five guys and only producing one guy who looks like a major leaguer at this point is uh, you know a little bit troubling and uh, makes it harder to I guess pencil in rebounds or pencil in draft picks uh, kind of working their way up and and uh, uh, matriculating and either making themselves interesting to the White Sox or another team so it'll take a year I think to regroup and really understand what the farm system has and I think uh, you know one of these interesting things with the farm system you know be, beyond where they rank among major league teams is just how uh, prospect evaluation places rank the number six through number 10 prospects because it is pretty wide open. It is very wide open. We'll have those discussions in the upcoming weeks when we invite those guests on to talk about the White Sox farm system. It's been a very key conversation and obviously you guys really enjoy those episodes because those are usually our most listened to episodes during the rebuild the last three years. But I'm really looking forward, Jim, to bringing on guests to talk about how well the White Sox are playing in Chicago. Yeah. Uh, So it's not like we're not going to pay attention to the farm system, but with all the activity that they have made this offseason, I just feel we need to devote a lot more attention to what's going on in Chicago rather than what's happening in Charlotte, Birmingham, Winston-Salem, and Kannapolis. And I find that to be very refreshing, which – leads into Andrew's question for us. And this question comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking us, Jim, thinking about the moves the White Sox have made, I feel really excited about this upcoming season. How do you guys feel as both fans and bloggers? Well, to, to, to take a cue from uh, the intro in uh, Conan O'Brien's podcast, I feel cautiously optimistic about being uh, the White Sox friend this year. Uh, it's, I think it's, uh, you know, I can see a way it doesn't, click and maybe Encarnacion is in his decline and Keuchel is not quite a number three and so on and so forth and the White Sox maybe you know hit 80 81 wins you know maybe they are able to break the losing uh, season streak but doesn't they never quite challenge for a divisional spot or a wild card spot at any point it feels mildly disappointing but the thing I like about is they are pushing in the right direction they are making wins matter again and and making decisions about winning and losing games and uh you know roster spots for uh you know the the fourth man in the bullpen and the uh fifth starter you know all these things are important again and that's that's really fun i mean that's really the fun stuff to write about and fun stuff to talk about and feeling losses again i think is uh yeah as odd as that sounds it's nice to have losses hurt again and uh the nice thing is about the way they've done it as is if they push and it doesn't quite work out and even say if it's a disaster and they're like you know maybe 10 games under 500 at the you know you know, early July and you, know, you start looking at the trade deadline, you know, they can sell a little bit and not really cost themselves, maybe regroup, try to grab an interesting prospect and then, you know, push again in the winter. I think that's the nice thing about the way they've gone about it. It's a modular approach to the off season. And if Encarnacion doesn't work out, swap them out, get another bat next year. Uh, same thing with C-Sheck uh, and, and Keiko to a lesser degree. There you know, is only three years rather than a four year deal for a pitcher. But uh, with all the young arms they have, they should be able to, uh, regroup and spend again. So it's, it's a nice way they've gone about it. And I think, you know, to tie it to the last question, Derek's question about the farm system is with the way the farm system has uh, not produced uh, players who look interesting via either, you know, via guys they want to bring up or guys they want to trade. At least they've gone about it. They've, they've, they've uh, acknowledged that by going heavily into free agency, but not in a way that really, uh, 
cost them significant plans in case they do have a rebound in the farm system or uh, have guys they can trade for for guys who are more long-term fits but either way it's a it's a nice way they've gone about it I'm not quite sure how it all fits and, and whether it'll click immediately to make themselves a threat in May and June uh, but I like the way they've gone about it and I ultimately endorse the offseason I mean how could you not be excited yeah for this upcoming season this is exactly the activity that we have been begging for the White Sox to have. And this also kind of circles back to the conversations we were having a calendar year ago when the White Sox were flirty with Manny Machado. And we came to the conclusion, Jim, that if the White Sox are never going to be that team that is going to sign the Garrett Coles, the Anthony Rendones, the Strasburgs, the Bryce Harpers, the Manny Machados, Let's even throw them in now because we talked about them early in the show. The Mookie Betzes, because they don't want to commit more than seven years and more than $250 million to a single player because that's just too much of a risk for them. They needed to really dominate the mid-tier market. They need to sign multiple players to 10 plus million dollars a season contracts, but on the shorter term, three, four, entertain five-year deals. And I feel like this offseason, they've really done that. They got Yasmani Grandal to set a new free agent record for the franchise. And if they really enjoy Dallas Keuchel after three seasons, Keuchel will set the new mark with his contract, beating out Grandal by a million dollars. And to bring in those two names to this team, along with you know taking a flyer in Edwin Encarnacion, and hopefully he provides the same type of impact that Nelson Cruz did for the Minnesota Twins last year, and we're going to finally see Gio Gonzalez pitch for the Chicago White Sox in his career uh, after being traded three times. I feel like this is the type of activity that the White Sox are never going to sign those marquee free agents because they're just not comfortable with committing the amount of years and cash to one player. They really need to be active and very busy in the mid-tier free agents, and I think they've done that very well this offseason. So that's why I'm excited. I think this is the best offseason that Rick Hahn has had. And I think that they've done everything they could have after missing out on Zach Wheeler. It's not a perfect offseason by any stretch of the imagination, but I think it's a B plus A minus offseason by the White Sox, and they put themselves in a much better position to compete and be a winning team and maybe even a dark horse contender in the American League Central in 2020. Yeah, I think it's, you know, when you compare it to the other time the White Sox won the winter with Samarja and Melky, David Robertson and so forth, uh, that was, you know, the Samarja trade was weird and, you know, costlier than we realized with the way Marcus Semyon has broken out. But, you know, it, you know going for the top of market for a closer and closers only really matter if you're winning enough games to where, you know, all those leads count. Melky being, you know, I guess a, a two wins above replacement player, but not somebody who ultimately changes the complexion of a team you know just they they kind of pen themselves into a certain course of action uh adam laroche another guy limited uh in, in terms of his impact and and just his ceiling uh but you know they 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 paint themselves into a corner with uh with the course they took by dealing from their prospect death depth but then you know when it came to spend past it they couldn't this time uh they have not touched what prospect depth they have and should uh some guys not quite work out like should you know not, not an Adam LaRoche situation in terms of uh, uh, everything else that happened with him, but with just in terms of his production just not panning out, uh, the White Sox can spend again and recalibrate, and, and hopefully they have guys to trade to to, to supplement that. But they have uh, they're, they're, it's much easier to see a second act in a way they can win the winter again without it being you know, kind of a cliche or, or, a, or a, I guess, just a cynical talking point. Right. I agree with that. And... I am hopefully the tone of this show and the conversations we are having in April and May are super positive, Jim. So I'm still meeting my New Year's resolution uh, as we are just a couple weeks into <laughs> 2020. Uh, but it's an excellent question, Andrew. And I, I'm it's great to hear that you guys are very excited because uh, when everybody's excited, there's a lot more engagement. You guys are listening to this show more often. You're visiting SoxMachine.com more often and reading our stuff. We're interacting with you guys more on Twitter in a more positive tone. 
which you can follow us at, at Sox Machine. You can follow me at Sox Machine underscore Josh. In the comments section, it's always a much better place when everybody is happy. Uh, and we can – it gives us the opportunity to also dive – take deep dives on what is working. We have spent a lot of time to point out what is not working and why players are – uh, not living up to expectations. But when things are going well for the Chicago White Sox, it's a lot more fun to take deep dives on why are the White Sox doing something really well uh, rather than pointing out this is where the White Sox have problems. Uh, so hopefully the players can uh, meet those expectations, even exceed those expectations, uh, as I think a lot of a lot of people across the White Sox, and I'm sure the team as well, Jim, uh, is very excited to see on how this 2020 season plays out. Hopefully we could just avoid the type of start that the team had in 2015 where it kind of popped the balloon before uh, things got really rolling as they had a terrible season in Kansas City, a series in Kansas City to start the year, and they just never got back on their feet. I like their leadership at least. <laughs> Whatever you think about Rick Renteria, uh, heads and shoulders above uh, Robin Ventura. Yeah, I agree with that as well. So, Andrew... Thank you so much for your question, and thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week for P.O. Sox. Again, for the next couple of weeks before we officially kick off the seventh season of podcasting between Jim and I, uh, if you would like to submit P.O. Sox questions for next week's episode, come over and help support us on patreon.com slash Machine, where, again, you will be getting additional content Uh, As far as additional writings from Jim and additional podcast content as well, you get an opportunity to not only ask additional PSOX questions that we always answer and make those available in a unique podcast for our Patreon supporters. That's also ad-free, but our Patreon supporters will also get an opportunity to submit questions and ask questions to our guests when they appear on the show. So if you really enjoy our content and you want more from us, uh, or if, again, if you just want to help support our cause over at SoxMachine.com, go to Patreon.com slash SoxMachine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening this week as I recover from jet lag. And, again, big thanks to Greg Nix for filling in for me last week. And uh, what? who knows what's going to happen next week? It's been a signing every single week, Jim, so I'm mentally preparing that the White Sox will not sign anyone, but who knows, maybe we will be shocked and we'll have another signing to talk about next week. Here's hoping, but if not failing that, I wouldn't mind the NRI list coming out and uh, giving us some names, even if we're just uh, uh, talking about uh, random 4A infielders or uh, lefties who uh, don't throw strikes. Uh, that's always welcome as well. Absolutely. We'll find plenty to talk about when it comes to Chicago White Sox next week, but there will be a new podcast episode of the Sox Machine podcast next Monday for you guys. But until then, thank you so much for listening. And if you just discovered the podcast, you can subscribe to our show in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.